Hello and welcome. My name is Tom Pesek. I'm Senior Liaison Officer at the FAO Office for North America based in Washington, DC. And I will be serving as moderator of our event today. For four consecutive years since 2017, FAO North America and IFPRI have partnered to co-host this annual high-level event focused on the key findings of the State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report, or the SOFI Report, as it is most commonly and more endearingly referenced. Despite the fact that the 2020 SOFI global launch was held yesterday on the margins of the UN High-Level Political Forum in New York, this clearly has not diminished any interest whatsoever in today's discussion, as evidenced by the registration rate for this event, which stands at nearly 3,000 registrants and an additional untold number who have not registered, but who are tuning in via the live feed. So on behalf of FAO North America and IFPRI, I would like to thank all of you for joining this session on transforming food systems for affordable, healthy, and sustainable diets for all. A high-level discussion on the key findings of the 2020 State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report. Before proceeding with our formal program, there are a few important housekeeping items I would like to cover. Firstly, I would like to advise you all that this event is being recorded. We are eager to hear from all of you, so to participate in the Q&A segment of this event, I would like to vigorously encourage all members of the audience to submit your questions for our speakers on ifpre.org, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, or using the hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter. And as you do so, please be sure to specify which speaker your question is for, and please identify yourself by citing your name and organizational affiliation, if any. Due to time constraints, I will not be able to provide full and proper introductions for our, our very distinguished group of speakers, but their biographies are hyperlinked on the page and platform from which you are joining us. Lastly, I would like to provide a brief outline of how our event today will be structured. In a moment, we will queue up a brief 2020 SOFI video. Thereafter, we will have the very good fortune of hearing from both the Director General of FAO and the Director General of IFPRI. This will be followed by a technical presentation on the key findings of the 2020 SOFI report by Maximo Torero. Next, we will hear special remarks from Congressman Jim McGovern of Massachusetts and founder and co-chair of the Bipartisan House Hunger Caucus. As a side note, and in line with our longstanding practice of promoting bipartisan participation, we had also invited Congresswoman Jackie Walarski of Indiana, as well as Senator John Bozeman of Arkansas. Unfortunately, however, both members were unable to join us due to previous commitments, but we thank them for their ongoing and unwavering leadership on these issues. After hearing from Congressman McGovern, we will then feature a keynote address from Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, which will help to further ground and contextualize our discussion today, which will be followed by a moderated panel discussion with three of the leading technical experts and thought leaders on these issues addressed in this year's reports, this year's report rather. We will then have a question and answer segment immediately following the panel. And last but certainly not least, I will invite my FAO colleague Vimlendra Sharan to offer closing remarks. And we will endeavor to end the session promptly at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy the official 2020 SOFI video, which will begin playing now. A global fight to address one of the biggest challenges of our time. 
five years after committing to eradicate hunger, we are not on track to reach our goals by 2030. Chronic hunger is up by 10 million people in one year and up by nearly 60 million in five years. Almost 690 million people went hungry in 2019, with numbers highest in Asia and rising fastest in Africa. If these trends continue, more than 840 million people will be hungry by 2030, with Africa overtaking Asia as the region affected most. The COVID-19 pandemic could add over 100 million people to this distressing toll. Overcoming hunger is just one part of the problem. Two billion people do not have regular access to safe, nutritious and sufficient food. In 2019, 144 million children under the age of five were stunted. While 47 million were affected by wasting, we are not on track to meet our 2030 targets for child stunting, low birth weight and exclusive breastfeeding. Countries are also facing the growing burden of obesity linked to poor quality diets, with 676 million of adults obese. Around the world, many people are suffering from hunger, food insecurity and malnutrition because they cannot afford healthy diets. Even the cheapest healthy diets are out of reach for more than 3 billion people in the world. In Sub-Saharan Africa and Southern Asia, around 57% of the population cannot afford nutritious food. Our current dietary patterns are also taking a heavy toll in terms of health costs and the environment. By 2030, diet-related health costs linked to mortality and non-communicable diseases could be more than 1.3 trillion US dollars a year, while diet-related costs of greenhouse gas emissions could be more than 1.7 trillion US dollars a year. As the world fights COVID-19, we cannot allow the pandemic to stop the global fight on hunger and malnutrition. To achieve a world free from hunger and malnutrition by 2030, countries must transform food systems and increase the affordability of healthy diets. Shifting to healthy diets could reduce direct and indirect health costs by up to 97%, while reducing the social costs of greenhouse gas emissions by up to 74%. We must ensure the cost of nutritious foods comes down. If the whole world shifts towards a healthy diet, we have a real chance at ending hunger and malnutrition once and for all. We must act now to build back better and make a difference in lives and communities everywhere. I now have the great honor and pleasure of introducing Dr. Chu Dong Yu, Director General of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, to deliver high-level remarks. Director General, the floor is yours. Okay. Good afternoon uh, from Rome. Uh, I'm so glad to participate in this uh, high-level uh, roundtable on behalf of AFL and our partners, Agency IFAD, UNICEF, WFP, and WHO. We are pleased to present to you the state of food security and nutrition in the world 2020, transforming food system for affordable, healthy diets. 
officially launched uh, yesterday. It was uh, second time, in a special event at the margin of the high-level political forum in New York on 13 July 2020. I'm aware that it has also become the customer to present the discussion this report at this roundtable organized by FL Lens Office in Washington, D.C., and our partner, IFBRI. So uh, I really thanks to the DG of IFBRI, uh, Jana, and uh, we are really wanted to make more uh, public accessible to the uh, meaning and the funding of this report. I don't want to miss this opportunity to join you or and participate this year. I think my colleague, Maxima Torero, he will give you some uh, details. I just want to highlight some points, share with you. Five years uh, has passed a, uh, since the world committed to the goal of ending hunger, food insecurity, and malnutrition by 2030. We only have 10 years to prove our commitment and action were bold enough. We are not only not on track to er eradicate hunger, food insecurity, and all forms of malnutrition by 2030, but also we need to re redouble our efforts given the challenges brought about by the COVID-19. In addition to being time, let me highlight four additional aspects of this year's report. First, the level of accuracy of hunger estimate is higher thanks to the availability of fresh data for a range of populous countries. Second, the report for the first time provided projection for 2030. Third, the report offers a preliminary assessment of potential impact of COVID-19 on food security and nutrition. And fourth, the report provided a comprehensive analysis on the cost and affordability of hazardous around the world. The evidence presented points us to the unwelcome reminders. To achieve zero hunger by 2030, we must do more. And over the past five years, tens of millions of people have joined the ranks of the undernourished. In 2019, 10 more million people went hunger and in the past five years, 60 million people, this is unacceptable. If a current trend continues, the number of people affected by the hunger would surpass 840 million by 2030. Look beyond hunger, consider a moderate of severe level of food insecurity. Two billion people do not have regular access to safe, nutritious, and sufficient food. This number, has consistently increased at the global level since 2014. Globally, the burden of malnutrition in all its forms also remains a challenge, and the world is not on track to achieve the 2025 and the 2030 targets. In some areas, such as adult obesity, we are actually moving in the wrong direction in all regions when the full impact of COVID-19 on food security is yet to be seen. Between 83 to 132 more millions of people could be pushed into hunger this year. 
And the nutritional state of the most vulnerable groups is also likely to deteriorate. However, we know exactly where to intervene. We can still succeed, but only by ensuring all people access not only to food, but to the nutritional food that make up a health diet. With this report, we are sending a strong message, a key reason why millions of people around the world suffer from hunger, food insecurity, and malnutrition is because they cannot afford the cost of healthy deaths. We must step up efforts to ensure that quality increases all over the world. It is unacceptable that not everyone can afford a healthy death, especially the poor. The most conservative estimate shows that even the cheapest healthy diets are affordable for more than 3 billion people in the world. A healthy diet can cost five times more than diets that meet the only dietary energy needs through the starchy type of food. We need to make sure healthy diets are affordable for everyone, and this will help us to make progress in other areas of sustainable development. Our current consumption pattern are not protect us against non-communicable diseases and are also contributing to the cost of environmental degradation. This report shows that shifting to environmentally sustainable health diets can contribute substantially to reducing health and climate change caused by 2030. In conclusion, what needed to be done. For this potential gain for people and the planet to materialize, we must ensure that the cost of nutritional food goes down. We know that the fact that driving the cost of nutritional food upward exists throughout the food supply chain, within food environment, and in the political economic shifting, shaping policies. We must then transform our food system to reduce the cost of nutritional food and ensure everyone can afford a healthy diet all over the world. A number of actions identified in the report can trigger this transformation. For example, rebalance agricultural policy, incentives towards more nutritional sensitive investment, intervening all along the food supply chain to reduce the food losses and enhance efficiencies at all stages. Promoting nutrition-sensitive social protection policy and introduce a policy that foster behavior change towards health debt. And more important is innovation. Innovation of business, innovation technology, innovation of the cooperation, global coherence, and also solidarity. We am here to confit, confit the findings and policy recommendation emanating from this report gave us enough food for thought for this roundtable. And I appreciate the cooperation from the IFPRI for many years. I have a strong background of academic background, so I appreciate all your deep thinking and thoughtful recommendation for international food and agriculture policy advisor. You are one of the think tanker I can count on you. Thank you very much. Over to you, moderate. Thank you, Director General. Thank you very much for that sobering but hopeful 
message about the current situation and outlook, and also for outlining constructive and key opportunities to transform our food systems to improve food security and nutrition. I now have the great pleasure and honor of introducing Dr. Johan Swinnen, Director General of the International Food Policy Research Institute to deliver high-level remarks. Dr. Swinnen, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Tom, and thank you, uh, Director General Chu, for your excellent introduction uh, to the meeting. It's, of course, our great pleasure and honor to co-host uh, with FAO North America this high-level discussion on the key findings of the 2020 State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report. This is, as Tom already mentioned, the fourth consecutive year in which FAO North America and IFPRI have partnered to co-host this event. And uh, we certainly from our side, we would like to continue this fine tradition in the future. As you know by now, the subtitle and the focus of the 2020 report is on transforming food systems for affordable, healthy and sustainable diets for all. This, of course, is a theme that is highly relevant for IFPRI. It was also uh, very close to the topic of our own global food policy report this year, which was focused on food systems and more particularly on making food systems more inclusive. Let me use a few minutes here uh, in the introductory remarks to make a few substantive remarks as well. I think the 2020 state of food security and nutrition in the World Report is a most useful and obviously a very timely report. The report provides, as usual, um, highly uh, much used data updated estimates on the number and proportion of hungry and malnourished people worldwide and disaggregated by country and region. And this is combined this year with an excellent analysis, I think, of how to transform food systems to deliver affordable, healthy and sustainable diets for all. I should say, which has already been uh, become clear from uh, both the introductory movie and uh, comments by the Director General of FAO, this is not an optimistic report. The report doc documents how the declining trend in hunger and food insecurity from the 1990s throughout the 2000s has come to an end five years ago, and it has not restarted since, in contrast. The report warns that if the recent trend, so the trend of the past few years continues, we will be moving away from the zero hunger target rather than moving towards it. This, of course, is highly worrying. What's even more worrying is that the reversal of this positive evolution of the first part of the 21st century already occurred before COVID-19. And we know by now that COVID-19 is making matters worse, much worse for many of the poorest people in the world. Predictions by IFPRI researchers are in line with the more pessimistic estimates in the report that more than 100 million people may fall back in extreme poverty and severe food insecurity due to COVID-19. Our models also predict that in addition to increased hunger, diets are likely to worsen significantly with the shift from more nutritious but more expensive diets to cheaper but less nutritious diets, which is also consistent with the message in uh, the report, the SOFIE report we're discussing today. These shifts are not only, so the negative nutrition shifts and diet shifts are not only occurring for the poorest households, they're also occurring for the less poor and the middle class household, but the poorest households are particularly negatively affected by COVID-19 for a combination of reasons. Lockdowns are affecting them particularly negative because it's affecting, it's restricting physical labor, which is their main productive asset. It's, it's restricting their access to public provision of food and to private supply chains of food. This is particularly uh, problematic for urban poor, for women and children. 
As we have now more and more data coming in and empirical evidence from a series of studies implemented by our country offices in Africa and Asia, what we find is that these predictive uh, effects are actually consistent with reality with the data that we are finding now. Income effects are particularly negative for the poorest and the worsening of nutrition and diets are particularly problematic for these households as well. What we do not know is how long this will last and what will happen in the coming months and years. However, we do know that temporary periods of hunger and malnutrition can have long-lasting effects. Some recent findings show that if you fall behind at a very young age, it is very difficult to catch up at later periods in life, even if the nutrition situation improves. What does this mean? Well, this means that although much of the analysis in the uh, report predates COVID-19, the conclusions of the report are highly relevant today. In a way, the recommendations are more urgent and more pressing today than they already were a year ago. The report goes in detail into a series of specific measures to transform food systems to make them at the same time more affordable, more healthy, more sustainable, and in sustainability now, resilience is an important component, I would say. I am not going to preview the recommendations here. I think Maximo will present them after me, and we have a panel of nutrition experts coming later. I just want to emphasize that in dealing with the emergencies of today, we should not forget, we should, should reinforce the importance of investment in what matters importantly, also in the long run. Issues such as strong public institutions, institutions also that allow the private sector to work efficiently and at the same time to stimulate equitable outcomes, education, research and development for the poorest and for nutritious products, and then finally, empowerment and leadership. All of these factors are more general or broader, but are extremely important for the objectives that this report attempts to support. So with that, let me end by congratulating the organizers uh, of this event uh, and basically and the people who, the institutions who have made this report possible. And, uh, and I give the floor now to Maximo to present some details of the report. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Director General, for that uh, similarly powerful and sobering message and for sharing with us IFPRI's assessment on the current situation of food security and nutrition in the world, uh, as well as for describing for us the drivers undergirding these trends. It's now my great pleasure to introduce Maximo Torero, Chief Economist at FAO and someone who is certainly no stranger to IFPRI, who will deliver for us a technical presentation on the key findings of the 2020 SOFI. Maximo, the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you very much to, to IFPLI, to the Director General, George Sweenen, uh, to the Director General of FAO, and to the North America Office uh, for allowing us to, to present this report. So what we are trying to do this year in the report is trying to bring new things. One is, of course, improving the quality of the data that we had and trying to update as much as we can the data. We have updated 13 countries. Uh, these are Bangladesh, China, Colombia, Ecuador, Ethiopia, Mexico, Mongolia, Mozambique, Nigeria, Pakistan, Peru, Sudan, and Thailand. And IFPRI has helped us, uh, David Laborde, specifically being an external reviewer to the methodology used to update this data. Second, we bring projections uh, of what the status of food insecurity and nutrition may be in 2030. We also bring a preliminary effort to estimate the impacts of COVID-19 on food security. And we also do an analysis on the affordability of healthy diets together with the support of Tufts University and the hidden costs associated with the current assumption, uh, consumption patterns. 
Let me start by bringing up some of the key key results that, that we have in this year in this year so first uh, world hunger is still increasing up to 10 million people in one year of more hunger hungry people uh, with respect to 2018 and nearly 60 million more in five years we are looking beyond hunger and when we look at beyond hunger and looking at the quality of regular access to safe and nutritious and sufficient food we have 2 billion people and we do, do, we do this by using our fees, the food insecurity scale uh, indicator for the moderate and severe. The world is not in track to eradicate uh, hunger. Clearly, if we continue in the trend we are, by 2030, we'll be in 840 million people in undernourishment. And COVID-19, of course, poses a, a threat to food insecurity. And this has increased or could increase the number of undernourished between 83 to 132 million people by 2020. And the world, of course, is not on track on many of the nutrition indicators uh, in, st in stunting, in wasting. And the only one which could achieve the 2025 uh, WHA goal is the one of exclusive breastfeeding. So the situation is not uh, good at all, and clearly we're not on track of what we want to achieve. Now, one thing which is important to, to, to clarify is the difference between two publications that we have. One is the SOFIR report, and the SOFIR report uh, reports on chronic undernourishment. This is a food insecurity, which is a long-term inability to meet food requirements. Uh, and also we have the equivalent, which is using the FIES, which is the severe food insecurity. But then we have the Global Food Crisis Report, which is looking to what we called uh, acute food insecurity. And this is something that is sporadic and sudden and could repeat, but it's something that is short-term. For example, many of the things that we are observing today in, in COVID-19, which could be short-term because you can gain your employment back in a few months, is part of what we call acute food insecurity. Now, if you don't treat properly acute food insecurity, this can become a structural undernourishment. But those numbers complement to each other, but they are not the same, and they come from different methodologies. In addition, in the SOFI, we also have what we call the moderate plus severe food insecurity, which is the 20 million billion people I was referring uh, before that are in moderate or uh, food insecure. But again, it's very important to make those differences because you hear numbers of 135 million people, which is what was reported in the food crisis report, which is not the same as the 690 million people that we report on undernourishment. Now, this is the, the result of the number. And as I mentioned before, we have increased between 2018 and 2019 in 10 million people moving into undernourishment. And we also have increased in the last five years in 60 million people. Now, if we continue as we are, we will arrive to 141 million. But where, where are, which countries and where are these people located? Right now, in Asia, we have 381 million people. In Africa, 250 million people. And it has increased the POU with respect to 2014. It has moved from 17.4, the prevalence, to 19.1%. And in Latin America, we have 48 million people and has increased in around 9 million people in the same time period. So in many of the regions of the world, things are not getting better, but especially in Africa, it's accelerating, which will result that if we continue in the same trend, Africa will be, by 2030, the bigger share, will have the bigger share of undernourished people. This is, by 2030, if we continue with the same trend, it will have 51.5% of the undernourished in the world, which is significantly higher to what it has now, and it will move to the second place, Asia, which will be with 329.2 million people. So we have to look at this very carefully. This is if we continue under the same conditions and this is something that we have to try to, to avoid to happen. We also did the estimation for what will happen in the COVID-19. And we are very careful with these estimations because there is a lot of, still of a lot of uncertainty. As you can see, the World Bank, the OECD, 
and the IMF, all of them report different numbers, although more or less they are in the same level. What we treat, did is we move from the lower one, which was the, the IMF estimation, the latest one, 4.9, to the highest one, which is the OECD with the second wave. But we add a plus to it because of the effects of the second wave. So we are moving in different scenarios. And in this range that goes from 4.9 to 10% decrease of GDP growth, for 2020, we are expecting an increase between 83 to 132 million people more on undernourishment, the chronic undernourishment. And that lowers a little bit in 2021, but it still doesn't lower to the initial situation. So we expect that in the future that will increase. And of course, this is assuming that the projections of GDP decline in 2021 are the correct ones, which of course they will continue to be updated. And we don't know after 2021 what will be the evolution of the GDP growth. So again, it's very important to take this as, as results that are still with a lot of uncertainty, but give us an idea of the potential magnitude that this will create. Now, the other instrument that we use, which also help us to see how correct we are in the POU, how consistent is the, the FIES, the Food Insecurity Experience Scale. And this brings the results of, of the Food Insecurity Experience Scale. Basically, in severe food insecurity, which is equivalent to the POU, to the undernourishment number, we have 746 million people, and 1.25 million people on moderate food insecurity, which is people experiencing moderate food insecurity, which face uncertainties about their ability to obtain food, and have been forced to compromise on the quality and the quantity of the food they consume. If we add both, that will put the 2 billion people that I was referring before. But it's very useful for us because it validates what we are observing. For example, in the case of Venezuela, which is one country in Latin America, we get exactly the same, the same severity of undernourishment, which is around 30%, which is exactly what we estimate. So this validates also the POU, which comes through official data. But we collect micro data from the official sources and we estimate uh, the POU. In the case of the FIES, we do the survey through, with Gallup. We collect the data on all the countries of the world. Now, if we look at the other indicators uh, of malnutrition, here's where we observe uh, that stunting uh, uh, under five years old is 144 million. Wasting is 47 million people. Overweight is 38.3 million people. So in all of them, we are not going to achieve the 2025 goal and the 2030 SDG target. And that's the orange bars in the different graphs. The only one we will be achieving the 2025 target is the exclusive breastfeeding, as I mentioned before. But overweight and obesity is increasing across all regions. And that's something to look because it's linked to non-communicable diseases. So we need to try to find a solution to measure these, these challenges. And we need to try to see how we can resolve that. And to do that, we look into what are the diets. And basically today we are looking at three different types of diets, energy sufficient diet, which basically you meet the minimum need of energy caloric nutrients to be able to achieve. Then you have the nutrient adequate diet, which means the required levels of all essential nutrients and the healthy diet, which includes in addition to the, to the nutrients, you also include the diversity of the several groups of foods that you need within to be able to be as healthy as you can. So the idea is to see what is the difference in the cost of those diets. And what we found is that the healthy diets are five times more expensive than the energy sufficient diet. And that's a very important result. Why they are so expensive and what we can do to achieve that. Not only that, we identify that three billion people cannot access to those diets. And this map, what we are showing is that in the red, the darker the red, the less the capacity to access to those diets. So look at the African continent. So most of the people cannot access to those diets, to those healthy diets. And this spreads also across Asia. So today we know that 3 billion people cannot afford this type of diets, the healthy diets, at the minimum cost healthy diet. Not only that, 
57% of Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa cannot afford those diets. And if we look at food crisis countries, productive crisis countries, around 86% of them cannot afford those diets. So this is the major challenge that we face. But also it's important to understand when we look at the diets, there are also hidden costs behind those diets. And we look at two hidden costs in, the, in this year's of. One is the ones related to health issues and the health costs. And what we know in terms of the health costs is that there is $1.3 trillion per year of health costs because of not eating the proper diet, which are the NCDs, the non-communicable diseases. And we also know that depending on the diet, and if I move to healthy diets, I could reduce those costs in around 97%. It's a huge reduction in terms of those costs bringing to the present value. We also look at emissions, and we want to look how much we can reduce emissions if we change the patterns of consumption towards healthy diets. And this is extremely important for climate change. And what we found is that there is $1.3 trillion per year by 2030 of, sorry, $1.7 trillion per year by 2030 of emissions, greenhouse gas emissions costs, hidden costs. And the reduction could be between 41 to 74%, depending on the type of diet we look at. So again, the consumption of these healthy diets could help us enormously to be able to reduce these hidden costs. But what is important is to understand and to measure those hidden costs so that we can put policies to minimize those trade-offs. This is looking at the food system approach, trying to understand not only achieving the goal of SDG2, but also trying to minimize the potential trade-offs. And this is showing by country, for example, where we are today. So you can see that US is consuming more and generating more emissions than countries like Uganda, which is under consuming what they are supposed to get. And that what it brings is the importance of the diversity and the flexibility and that not only one diet will resolve the problem. For different countries and for different contexts, the composition of that, the healthy diet will be different. And some countries will have to consume more emissions. Some countries will have to reduce the level of emissions. And that's where we'll create the quality that we need and the reduction of inequality in the quality of consumption that we have today. Now, the question is what to do, and I finish with this. And there are many policies that we can implement here, but we need to look both at the supply and at the demand side. The policy that we are presenting here is a combination of both. But on the supply side, we think that there are a lot of incentives that can be aligned towards nutrition-sensitive investments. As many of you know, today most of the support prices, more of the policies of subsidies are towards a staple commodities, a starchy food and not towards healthy diets. That can change. Also, we know that we can improve the, the effectiveness and the efficiency of the supply chain by reducing food losses, which is extremely important on the producer side, because that will allow us to recover a lot of what is lost in terms of high value commodities. Also, we know that we can improve intra-regional trade and international trade, because that will allow us to have commodities in shorter distances for inter-regional trade and taking into account food safety, that will allow us to have the diversity of supply that we need. So it doesn't mean necessarily that I will affect my local producer. On the contrary, I could bring produce of all the diversities that I need. But also within the country, sometimes food cannot move. In many countries, you have areas where you produce and areas where you don't have food. And that's what we need to minimize. We need to bring nutrition-sensitive social protection programs, and we need to look at changing the behavior. That's the demand side. Consumers need to know what they eat, and they need to understand what are the consequences of what they eat and what are the externalities and the trade-offs. And therefore, we need to pursue dietary partners with low impact on health. Now, again, this does not mean at all that the producers will earn less. The idea is to make the value chain more efficient so that they can earn, even could earn more because they can gain more quantity of consumption. But at the same time, it could give it more access. But on the demand side, we also need to find ways to increase wages 
to increase income of people which are poor. And with COVID-19, the number of people moving into poverty and extreme poverty is increasing. And that's why we need to find solutions so that also we can increase the capacity of access and the purchasing power of the consumers. So we need to change. We need a significant transformation. But we believe that gains in efficiency and trying to find opportunities and new markets could also increase income and increase demand. So it's a supply issue, but also a demand issue that will allow us to achieve the food system transformation that we need. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Maximo, for that very thorough technical presentation and analysis of these 2020 SOFI. And thanks also for uh, fitting all that in within, within your time allocation. It is now my immense honor and pleasure to introduce Congressman Jim McGovern, who represents the second district of Massachusetts in the United States House of Representatives. He is also the founder and co-chair of the bipartisan House Hunger Caucus. Congressman McGovern is a critically important leading voice in Congress on ending hunger in the United States and around the world. He serves as chairman of the powerful House Rules Committee. He is also a senior member of the House Committee on Agriculture's subcommittee on nutrition and oversight. He has been a tireless and steadfast champion of anti-hunger efforts for decades. Congressman, thank you very much for making time to join us. The floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Tom, and uh, and let me uh, let me thank the FAO and and everyone who's helped put this important discussion together. And um, I will uh, try to be succinct in my remarks uh, because there's some incredible speakers here, including my friend Jeffrey Sachs, uh, uh, who will be more thought-provoking, inspiring, uh, and uh, informative than me on some of the challenges that we're that we're all facing here. But uh, I'm happy to be uh, on this distinguished uh, with this distinguished group here. Um, Look, as many of you may know, um, you know, I focus a great deal of my time in Congress uh, on trying to end hunger in America. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the accompanying economic shockwave have intensified hunger and food insecurity in my country to a level that I've never seen in my lifetime. Uh, cars lined up for miles to, to just pick up a couple of bags of food. Uh, people lined up as far as the eye can see for a meal at a community kitchen or to pick up a box of food from a food bank or a food pantry. Uh, all of our food banks, all of our food pantries are at capacity. Uh, this is what it is like uh, in the richest country in the world. Uh, people come up to me all the time in the midst of this pandemic, and I'm sure they do to you as well. Uh, and they say, I, you know, when are we gonna get back to normal? I can't wait to get, I can't wait to get back to normal. And my response is that we, we, I don't wanna go back to normal. Uh, normal was unacceptable. Uh, we need to do better than normal. I mean, in the United States, uh, before this pandemic, we had close to 40 million people who were food insecure or hungry. You know, as a United States member of Congress, I'm ashamed by that statistic. As a citizen, I'm appalled by that statistic. So I don't want to go back to normal. Um, you know, and now we see the numbers piling up on that 40 million, uh, but we need to figure out a way not to get back to 40 million uh, food insecure or hungry, but a way we need we need a plan to eradicate hunger and food insecurity in this country uh, once and for all. But the fact of the matter is, when, when we say that global food security and nutrition are increasing worldwide, the most comfortable nations in the world right now are adding to those numbers, uh, including in the United States. But the fact also is that our recovery as a comfortable nation will be likely easier and faster 
than poorer and more vulnerable countries. You know, in May, at the last FAO event, uh, I said that we are currently facing a crisis within a crisis that is unprecedented in many ways. Uh, an already dire food and nutrition situation is further deteriorating as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the 2020 State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report estimates that there are nearly 690 million people who are hungry, or 8.9% of the world po world's population. That's up by 10 million people in one year and by nearly 60 million in five years. The number of people affected by severe food insecurity shows a similar upward trend. In 2019, close to 750 million, or nearly one in 10 people in the world, were exposed to severe levels of food insecurity. The world is not on track to achieve zero hunger by 2030. Uh, and if recent trends continue, the number of people affected by hunger would surpass 840 million by the year 2030. Now, this year's st uh, State of uh, Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report focuses on transforming food systems for affordable, healthy, and sustainable diets for all. But we all know that nutrition will also deteriorate during the pandemic. Millions of people are finding it a challenge just in finding food, uh, let alone creating a healthy diet made up of nutritious foods. In El Salvador, uh, a country that I have spent a lot of time in over the years, we see the white flags of hunger flying in every neighborhood except the wealthiest. In Colombia, the flags are red. Uh, they all signal the same thing. We have no food. There is hunger here. Someone please help us. You know, a healthy diet is already out of reach for too many people, especially the poor, in every region and in every country of the world. The most conservative estimates show a healthy, nutritious diet is unaffordable for more than 3 billion people in the world. On average, a healthy diet is estimated to be five times more expensive than diets that meet only our energy needs through a starchy staple. We're going to need to take bold and decisive action now if we're going to avert or mitigate the worst of the potential impacts that COVID-19 might have on hunger worldwide. And so we, can't, we cannot afford to be isolationist. We cannot afford to be cheap. We cannot afford to be selfish. As I have said again and again and again, along with other members of Congress, now is not the time for the United States to abandon its long and proud leadership role in the global fight against hunger and malnutrition. Nor is it the time to cut U.S. funding to programs and organizations addressing these important issues. In fact, the current crisis underscores the critical need for the United States to maintain and even strengthen its global leadership on food and nutrition security. Failure to maintain or increase U.S. support for global food security could have, could have devastating consequences. Now look, there is enough food in the world to feed everyone, and we already know the solutions to ending hunger and malnutrition. I say this all the time, uh, but it's, I think it's, it's, it's so true, and that is hunger is a political condition. Um, and what we continue to lack is sufficient political will uh, to end this scourge once and for all. And look, um, we need to give some real thought to how we create that political will because we cannot rely on world leaders, including the leader of the United States, to necessarily get it and lead on this. Um, 
And again, we're, 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 we're even in the United States, we're having debates over, you know, not wanting to participate in anything uh, that may support international efforts to lift up the quality of life in other countries because we're being told, oh, you know, we, we just need to focus on ourselves. So we, we have to figure out how to change uh, attitudes and how to change the discussion. Uh, and I look forward to working with many of you to, to create the political will, uh, to fulfill our moral imperative, and to end hunger now. I'll just close with, with this. I, mean, I, I used to have a history teacher who used to end every class saying the same thing. He used to say, you know, the world will not get better on its own. And in all candor, you know, when I was taking the class, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. But I do now. Um, and, um, you know, and I, and, I, and I believe that we're not going to achieve our goals. Um, we're not going to uh, deal effectively with issues of hunger and malnutrition and poor diets um, unless like-minded people come together and, and demand change. We need to understand that one of our biggest hurdles right now is the political will, is creating the urgency amongst our leaders around the world that this has to be a priority. And um, to the extent that we can be successful in changing those attitudes, um, I think we will end up being able to uh, achieve uh, the kinds of results that all of us want. So to everybody here, thank you for all that you do. Uh, and uh, Tom, thank you again for having me uh, participate. Congressman, the, the thanks goes to you, not only for making time uh, to join us here today, but also for your critically important leadership on these issues. And just like to thank you for uh, those very clear and urgent messages uh, and call to action to improve the current situation. Thank you. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, who among many other things, serves as director of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network and, the, and is an SDG advocate for the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. Dr. Sachs, the floor is yours to, to help connect these dots for us and tell us what all this means. Tom, thank you very much. I'm really honored uh, uh, to be part of this uh, program, the launch of this uh, fantastic report, uh, but also uh, to follow Congressman McGovern. Thank you, Congressman, for uh, your words, your leadership, uh, for making me feel better uh, that I know you're in Congress. These are not easy days uh, in the world, and they're not easy days in the United States, uh, where we have had more than 130,000 deaths from COVID, and we have, unfortunately, a federal government, the executive branch that uh, is incapable of addressing this crisis, and it just gets worse and worse. Uh, and even though we're a rich country, uh, we have so much suffering and uh, so many people uh, who are poor and falling into poverty and destitution. And that's for the richest large economy in the world. Uh, the situation we're facing around the world is, is dire. I think the overwhelming fact of our world is the inequality. And it's, it's beyond our imagining. Uh, all of us uh, on uh, this call have enough to eat and we don't worry about our daily uh, 
access to adequate food and nutrition uh, because we're part of uh, the world that uh, uh, lives in prosperity. And actually for many of us, uh, year after year, uh, wealth has increased, incomes have increased because the gaps between those who have and those who do not have been widening in many parts of the world, not all. Uh, our wonderful FAO director, uh, uh, Dong Yushu, uh, is from a country that ended extreme poverty this past year. China has been the most successful in fighting poverty, but that is not the rule, that's the exception. Uh, actually, uh, we are seeing rising wealth and uh, rising uh, insecurity and poverty at the same time, including, uh, as Congressman McGovern uh, just said, in the United States, a country with $65,000 average GDP per person and yet 40 million insecure people. Where is that money going? Well, uh, the answer is we know where it's going. It's going right to the top. Uh, this year alone, Jeffrey Bezos uh, has had an increase of uh, net worth, I just checked it, $69 billion. One person, $69 billion in the COVID pandemic. And that is just the beginning of it because it's billionaire after billionaire whose wealth is soaring. The stock market's rising with tens of millions of people unemployed in the United States and hundreds of millions of people destitute and made destitute by this pandemic. Unfortunately, in many countries, including the United States, the power is in the hands of the rich, the oligarchy and it's getting worse. Uh, but maybe it'll get better right now if uh, Americans understand that this is leading us to a uh, disaster, which it is. But we have been increasingly taken over by the richest people in the world who pay vast sums of campaign contributions and lobbying to take over the government apparatus. And our, uh, federal government right now is basically run by the lobbyists of uh, big companies. It's unbelievable. One after another is just a lobbyist that's been put into power because they made the campaign contributions. That's the whole deal of how the politics works. So the background to this report is a world that is wealthy, $150 trillion annual output an average world production on the order of about $13,000 per person on the planet, measured at international prices, purchasing power prices, and yet rising destitution and mass hunger. So unless we get a grip on the inequality, unless we have the decency to feed the poor, and to help ensure that children have schooling and have a chance. And unless we have the good
good sense to have a politics for all people, not a politics for an oligarchy, we face this paradox of what uh, the Sophie report shows, which is incredible basic deprivation in the world, in a world of wealth. Now, of course, everything has been made more dramatic by COVID-19, which hit after this report was basically finished. So what the report adds is that the crisis will get even worse than what the report shows. I think it's going to be much worse than what this report suggests, which must have been uh, the estimates uh, coming, say, in uh, March or April. We're not controlling the pandemic. We have too many leaders like Trump or Bolsonaro or others who have denied basic facts, basic science, basic public health, and left their populations uh, at the mercy of a killer virus, which is what's happened in the United States and Brazil and many other countries. And so the depth of this crisis is going to be worse. And food insecurity and income insecurity is going to rise by hundreds of millions, not by the hundred or so million that is forecast here. There is no V-shaped recovery. There is, in fact, a long crisis coming. And it's at the scale of the Great Depression. And it is the result of, first and foremost, the failures of basic leadership in many places, but underpinned by structural inequalities that have left those in power just not caring. And that is the underlying condition we face. We're living in a world that doesn't care. I think this report makes some important advances that I want to underscore. Uh, the first is a much clearer definition of what we mean by the food crisis, because it gives three different clear uh, senses of uh, food crisis. One is the traditional definitions of hunger based largely around energy uh, access or adequate uh, energy intake. The second is what's called a nutritious diet, uh, which is uh, adding in uh, the micronutrients. And the third is a healthy diet, which is what everybody should be enjoying. And what this report shows is it's not even the 800 million, a shocking number in and of itself that we had uh, with an inadequate diet. It's 3 billion people with out access to a healthy diet. Also, I think the evidence in this report makes clear we need to report hunger fundamentally differently and to report poverty fundamentally differently. By poverty, we used to mean that you had the income to meet basic needs. Now it's clear that the international hunger line cannot even provide a healthy diet. So in what conceivable sense is the current international poverty line a sensible measure of being able to meet basic needs? Well, it may be a measure of the capacity to stay alive day to day to meet the basic energy 
metabolic needs, but it is not a measure of being able to meet the basic needs of being healthy. And so I think we, I'm sorry to say it, but there are a lot more poor people in the world than we're measuring right now, and a lot more hungry people than we're measuring right now. Both numbers are put at around 800 million on the eve of COVID, but it's probably right to say that we have between two and three billion people who are living in poverty if we define poverty as uh, being in a state of inability to meet basic needs of a healthy diet. So I think this report really underscores the need for rebasing our measures and showing uh, actually uh, the world as it is. Uh, we've known for a while that the uh, definition of hunger is problematic because of micronutrient deficiencies. Now, because of the increasing scientific evidence about what is really a healthy diet, we have to move even beyond access to nutrients to move to really the diversity of diet and <coughs> its uh, sub-components that is a definition of a basic uh, uh, adequacy. And then when we rebase hunger and uh, poverty measures on that level, we'll unfortunately find that we're not where even we thought we were on the eve of COVID. Well, all of this is about to become dramatically worse. We need FAO to help us together with its partner institutions, uh, with the World Food Program, uh, with IFPRI and uh, uh, with uh, other critical institutions to help us monitor in real time what's happening. We already have a profound, unprecedented humanitarian crisis, the worst uh, that the world has faced since World War II, but it's going to get worse. Uh, and we can't let the Trumps of the world determine our response because that's a response, unfortunately, of cruelty, not a response of decency. And that's what's happening in our own country, but it has to be recognized at a global level that we need to do what we're not doing right now, and that is attending to the global realities. Well, suffice it to say, it's even more complicated than this, because uh, if we were in normal crisis times, we'd also be spending some time about the climate crisis, which is actually hitting us in real time these days, uh, the collapse of biodiversity, which is accelerating in the Amazon and other critical biomes these days, about the interaction of the healthy foods and the land use, which is a critical uh, a uh, critical uh, component of uh, solving this crisis because we really need to change uh, the allocation of agricultural production away from extensive cattle farming, for example, to growing legumes uh, and nuts and uh, plant-based proteins. And so we need a massive transformation of land uh, that is also part and parcel of a healthy planet. But we're in such an emergency, we barely can even focus on 
uh, those critical issues. Uh, if we're going to get this right, fundamentally, we need a change of politics and a change of decency in this world. Uh, the United States, uh, other than terrific uh, congressmen uh, like Congressman McGovern, we've abandoned sense and multilateralism uh, in our current politics. We've abandoned decency, cutting off uh, WHO in the middle of this pandemic. We can't even keep Americans alive, much less help the world uh, under the current state of our misery. And this is a situation that is worldwide. This report is a dramatic report. It's a very path-breaking and important report. Uh, it uh, outlines the path that we need to take. I want to thank all the authors uh, for it uh, and uh, say that we will struggle together and uh, do what we can to change the course of how uh, humanity uh, is behaving today, especially how our political system uh, is uh, responding. Um, I'll just end by saying, as I've spent my entire career pointing out, we have the know-how, we have the means, we have the wealth, we have uh, the capacity to end poverty, to end hunger, to move to a safe land use system, to move to a safe energy system. It is, as Congressman McGovern said so rightly, a matter of politics, not a matter of scarcity. When one person in my country has $188 billion of wealth and thinks that his big mission is to go to the moon or go to Mars, you know how messed up we are on this planet. And when that's regarded as normal, uh, we understand the kind of weirdness that we're in. When 15 Americans have a trillion dollars of wealth in their hands and it's gone up more than $100 billion in the first six months of this year, and we don't hear a word from almost any of them, with the exception of Bill Gates, about doing something decent for the world, we know why we're failing right now. So thank you for the report. Sorry for the rant. But the point is that the story of this report is a drama. And it indicates that the situation is worse than we think. And that's true even before COVID-19, which has dramatically multiplied the threats that this year's report uh, has already been documenting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Sachs, for that very somber and, and, and sobering set of remarks and for sharing your thoughts and your perspective on the current situation and on uh, what the, the findings in this report mean going forward. Before we transition into the panel discussion segment of the event, I would just like to remind our audience to begin submitting questions for our speakers on ifpre.org, Facebook, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, or by using the hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce Marie Ruel, who serves as the Director of Poverty, Health, and Nutrition Division at IFPRI. 
Murray, could you tell us what your views are on the implications of the 2020 SOFI report for the expected impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and the related economic shock on nutrition? Thank you. Uh, I want to thank also the organizers for inviting me to participate in this launch and for the fantastic SOFI report. Um, first, I'd like to say that I was really pleased with the focus of the SOFI report. Obviously, as a nutritionist, um, we have been arguing for several years that it is not enough to focus on the question of whether or not the food systems will be able to feed 9 billion people by 2050, but that we need to ask whether we will have the right quality of food and the right combination of foods that make up a healthy diet. So it's great to see that the quality and affordability of the food supply are the main focus of this important report. One of the reasons why it's so important to worry about diet quality is that poor quality diets are the one shared driver of all forms of malnutrition. From low birth weight to child wasting and stunting to micronutrient deficiencies, all the way to overweight and obesity, all these forms of malnutrition share the common driver of poor diet quality. So the focus of the SOFI related to the affordability of healthy diets before the COVID-19 pandemic could not have been more timely. The report shows that the situation was already bad before the pandemic, but we know, and, and other speakers have mentioned, that the pandemic and related economic shocks are exacerbated this situation, and they are impacting nutrition through changes in the demand and supply of nutritious foods, which in turn will increase the risk of micronutrient deficiencies and of all other forms of malnutrition. So we've already seen from research done by IFRI and others from, from phone surveys and qualitative work in different countries that the crisis has indeed tremendous, had already tremendous impacts on livelihoods, on employment and on income. And this has resulted in large drops in the consumption of micronutrient rich foods like animal source foods and fresh fruit and vegetables which have high income and price elasticity. So that means that when income go down, these foods go down and, and households try to increase their consumption of cheaper sources of calories so that they maintain a stable calorie intake and emphasize consumption of staple, staple cereals, grain, beans, and pulses. In some cases, consumption also of processed and ultra processed foods, high in calories but poor in essential nutrients also increases where these foods are available and we know that um, consumption of these foods is associated with increased risks of overweight and obesity. In terms of supply, we've also seen several reports of major disruptions in value chains of perishable nutritious nutrient rich foods. Again, the animal source food and vegetables and fruits are the, are the value chains that are most affected because of their high perishability. But um, and, and they have been affected in terms of supply uh, and the result of these, of these supply um, constraints have been possibly changes in their prices and also a lot of food waste. Entire crops have been destroyed because it could not be distributed. So the changes in both demand and supply for nutritious foods are likely to have tremendous effect on the quality of diets during and after the crisis. And in this context, 
making nutrition, nutritious and healthy diets available and affordable should be a key priority of all the key systems that we rely on to improve nutrition. So I'll just mention three key systems and, and a few recommendations that are consistent with uh, the report as well, but I want to reemphasize. Um, in terms of health systems, we know that this is a very important system for us in nutrition that provides uh, essential nutrition and health actions like antenatal care, immunization, but also nutrition counseling on healthy diets. And we need to continue these. We cannot stop, the, reduce the coverage like, like we had seen in the first few months of the crisis. We cannot reduce the coverage of these important essential nutrition actions and in, in, uh, in, in health actions. Uh, we also need to use the nutrition counseling to, to teach households about healthy diets, but to correct also the misinformation related to virus transmission, because some people believe that animal source foods and vegetables are part of the problem and are dangerous during this time. And so this is another reason why the demand has gone down in some countries. Social pr protection systems, including school meals, have also been mentioned and are, and are very important. But what we need to do is to make sure that they do not, if they distribute food, they do not only focus on quantity, that they also focus on quality where possible, meaning possibly including fortified foods in the rations. And ideally, we would like to have combination of food transfers and cash transfers so that the cash transfers can be, helped, uh, can be used to purchase nutritious, perishable foods and to keep the economy going. And finally, on agriculture and food systems, the report has a lot of very interesting ideas of, of what, uh, how to make diets more affordable and, and accessible, healthy diets more accessible. And some options that I'd like to emphasize here are supporting local production, home gardens, very urban agriculture for fruits and vegetables, for dairy and possibly for eggs and chicken, and the promotion of nutrient-rich biofortified crops. So in closing, I'd like to mention that improving nutrition requires coordinate action from various sectors and systems, and I've only covered three here very briefly. And I think it would be useful to use the common goal of improving the affordability of healthy diets as a catalyst for joint action across those sectors and systems. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marie, for those very concrete and specific recommendations for how to improve nutrition through healthy diets. It's now my great pleasure to introduce Anna Larte, the Director of Food and Nutrition at FAO. Anna, the report provides a great deal of evidence to support what we in many ways already know, that, that healthy diets are often not affordable for far too many uh, people in the world. In your opinion, what can be done to change this situation, especially if we are to achieve SDG2? Okay, thank you very much, Tom, and thank all the previous speakers for what has been said. I think the report appears to be shocking by looking at the numbers we are talking about, 3 billion not having access to healthy diets. But the truth is that these poor and vulnerable have known this all along. They have been feeling the pangs of hunger. They have seen their children wasting away in, before them. So they know 
they cannot afford healthy diets. So this news is not new to them. They have been living it. Okay. Now, now that we have brought this to the fore, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what can be done? We have unearthed the problem. What can we do to address it? I think that as has been said by Jeffrey Sachs, we have, we have the know-how. We know what to do. And I'll just give one, a few examples here. First, we've been very, very successful with food production, staple crop production, because we put in the resources, we put in the research, we put in all the things because our focus was on addressing hunger. Now we have a bigger problem, which is unhealthy diet or not having uh, access to affordable diets. I think we should put the same vim and energy into making sure that nutritious foods are affordable. And there's a lot that can be done. And first, we should start with governments. Governments can do a lot. Look at this issue of small-scale farmers. They produce most of the nutritious crops that we, we all consume. But the support that is given them is not enough. They produce so little because they don't have a lot of support. They don't have access to markets. And they do not get fair prices for what they produce. Can you imagine a small-scale farmer or a family farmer sitting behind his or her produce for a week or two because the vehicle that comes once a week did not come? Or there is no infrastructure, there's no road that leads to the farm. The fruits are produced, the little that is produced stays there and they can only cut a little. No infrastructure. We should look at this. Secondly, we should also look at processed foods in countries. In many countries, because processed foods are so cheap, so cheap, and I always give the example where in some countries, a bottle of sugar-sweetened beverage costs 20 cents. A medium-sized watermelon costs 2 to $3. There is something wrong here. The food we want people to eat more of are so expensive they cannot afford. It is not surprising that they have to then consume the high-calorie foods which do not have enough, enough nutrients. My colleague uh, Marie, uh, Marie Ruel talked about the link of healthy diets to nutrition and also health. This is very, very important. We should make the message clear that having access to healthy diets will mean that we can actually improve our health and do so many things, get better opportunities because of access to healthy diets. And within the, 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 the opportunities available to government, they can do whatever they can to make healthy diets affordable. We can take some of the taxes that can be put on some of these sugar-sweetened beverages, put some of these onto uh, 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 the healthy, nutritious foods that, that we want people to eat. Now, uh, we've talked about the social protection measures. I think these are good, but it's supposed to be to tie people during periods of difficulties. Let's not make this a permanent feature. We should address the structural problems that make it difficult for people to access healthy foods. We should address the structural problems so that social protection measures are not permanent. As I said, 
we should teach people actually how to fish so that they can be able to do for themselves. I think it's a sign of dignity, dignity, when they can work and be able to give their families healthy diets. So we, to do this, we should look at the structural problems, creation of jobs. Let's make sure we create jobs, fair wages for people who produce these foods, and also empower women. Women in the food system need to be empowered. We need to empower the youth, give them the skills that they need to take up some of the work. You know, the youth are now running away from agriculture. Because these structures are not there, we are seeing the crisis, the crisis of migration, the crisis, health crisis, the crisis, the various crises we are seeing. They are all linked to these structural problems that are not addressed and for which reason people do not have access to healthy diets. I'll end by saying that we are talking about healthy diets, the sustainable development goal is supposed to lead us and help us. But unfortunately, if you look at the indicators of SDG2, there is no indicator, there's no dietary indicator to help us to do the right thing, the positive things to eat healthy. We don't have an indicator, and I think this is something we should look at and try to correct put dietary indicators into the SDGs to enable people to eat well. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for those, um, for outlining for us the ample opportunities before us to expand the affordability of healthy diets for improved nutrition. Last but not least, I am now pleased to introduce Anna Herforth. Anna is Tufts affiliate and Senior Research Associate in the Department of Global Health and Population at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Anna, could you tell us what this report adds to our current understanding of food security? Thank you, Tom. And I'd like to uh, follow on the remarks of my fellow panelists and uh, as well as Jeffrey Sachs in emphasizing that we have known for a long time that the prevalence of undernourishment, which is traditionally reported in the SOFI report, uh, is not a complete indicator of food security, that it mainly focuses on hunger or adequate calories. And this is absolutely critical as so many people struggle with this, but it's not enough. And it's not enough for health or for dignity as Analarti just emphasized. I'd like to bring us back to what we as a world agreed almost 25 years ago at the World Food Summit in 1996, where the definition of food security was drafted that we've been using ever since, which is that when food security exists, when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe, nutritious food that meets dietary needs and food preferences for a healthy and active life. So I wanna talk a little further about that last part, meeting dietary needs for a healthy and active life. Because for a long time, we've talked about the disconnect of measuring calories while holding a vision of access to nutritious food. And in recent years, we've gotten a little closer with the food insecurity experience scale being measured across countries within the Gallup World Poll, which has really broadened our understanding of people suffering from moderate and severe food insecurity and countries' ability to track that as an indicator. But we've never had a metric designed specifically to answer the question, 
Can people actually access nutritious food to meet dietary needs? Do their food environments provide it? So for this report, I uh, led the background analysis of the cost and affordability of nutritious diets with the food prices for nutrition team at Tufts University. And we wanted to know in any country, when you go to the market, can you find a diet that meets dietary recommendations? How much does it cost and can people afford it? So as has been discussed already today, what we found is that on average, even the lowest cost diet to meet dietary recommendations costs about $3.75 in international dollars, which is obviously far above the international poverty line of $1.90. And as has been emphasized, it's almost five times as much as just accessing starchy staples to meet calorie needs. So this kind of statistic emphasizes its cost as a huge bottleneck to people actually eating adequate diets. Nutrition education is not going to solve this problem. And we know now there are huge gaps between the type of diets we know will protect health and nutrition in all sorts of ways for a healthy and active life compared to what people can actually afford. It's clear why people eat more starchy staples instead of the nutrient-rich healthy diets that are recommended. And this shows injustice and also the narrowness of our food supply. A major reason for the high cost of healthy diets is a lack of diversity. Non-starchy staples cost more and they're also less available. So when we say things like the world has enough food to feed everyone, that's true only in terms of calories. It is not actually true when we consider all the types of food that people need for healthy diets. The SOFI report also shows that it's only in Asia and in upper middle income countries that there are adequate availability of fruits and vegetables to meet the 400 grams recommended uh, globally per person per day. So if we're talking about food in terms of diverse foods, we have to think about improving both availability and affordability. And as Dr. Analarti said, there are many ways that can be, we can take forward to tackle this, ranging from improved investment in fruits and vegetables in particular in legumes, so low carbon impact nutrient dense foods, to also social protection that would include not only cash transfers, but also seeds for home production of foods that are expensive in the marketplace and conservation of wild areas where people also access nutrient dense foods. So we need many ways to increase access to diverse and balanced diets in order to really achieve that global vision of food security um, now more than ever. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Anna, for helping us understand the importance of the SOFI, the 2020 SOFI report for deepening our own understanding of food security. We are now, we have many questions, but uh, limited time remaining, so we will address as many questions as possible. The first question is for Director General Swinnon. Unfortunately, uh, the Director General of FAO had to leave for another engagement, but question for Director General Swinnon. In light of the key findings of the 2020 SOFI report, and in light of IFPRI's role in promoting evidence-based policy solutions, 
to increase food security and, and nutrition. What, what would be a key message that uh, you would have for leaders, decision makers, or, or governments in order to improve food security and nutrition uh, against the current backdrop or, or context? Um, I probably need uh, all your minutes to, <laughs> which are remaining to answer that question because it's a very broad question and so there's so many different uh, things covered. I think the, the, the big uh, conclusion that comes out here from, uh, the, from the report but also from the discussion or, let, or let's say the other presentation is that you need, I mean, there's no one particular thing that you should do. You need a whole package of things that, that need to be done, which can go from, uh, Marie was very specific, for example, nutrition counseling, but it basically means, I mean, if if the cost of um, of basically a healthy diet are double the basically the price of what uh, poor people make, then you have to at the same time try to bring the price down and get the incomes up to make that possible to do that. And so you have to do a whole bunch of thing, working on the supply side, working on the demand side, but also basically you have to create employment, create better jobs, get the economy going so incomes go up. So it's a whole package of, of different things. And the report has a very, I think the last slide of Maximo summarized very well some of the, the key um, points there. So I'm gonna leave it at that, otherwise there won't be no time for other questions. Excellent, thank you very much, Director General. This question is for, for Maximo Torero. Maximo, what are the most important recovery strategies that will stimulate economic growth in a matter that in a manner that reduces income inequality? This is a question that's come in from Brady Deaton. Well, that's a difficult question. Uh, so uh, the COVID-19 is going to create a huge recession, as it was mentioned before, and, and we are seeing numbers which are pretty bad and, and what will happen. Now, again, the vision that we are pushing in FAO is how we can take this as an opportunity to create a change. Uh, and it's very complex because developed countries have resources to, to push uh, the recovery. They can put trillions of dollars in, in, in increasing uh, the monetary policies. And they also, in terms of, of employment, they have uh, unemployment insurance and they have social security. And that's why you are not seeing significant problems in terms of food access in, in developed countries. Developing countries on the contrary don't have that. They don't have the trillions of dollars. Most of them are extremely indebted and they don't have uh, unemployment insurance and social security if they have very low quality. And most of their activities, 60 to 70% are informal activities. So the inequalities are huge. And I think this brings to the issue of solidarity and, and it, it also brings to the issue to take the reduction of inequality more serious. So it's a huge opportunity to think carefully on tax reforms and what we need to do to redistribute income better. It's a huge opportunity to do public works and bring investment in infrastructure, which is extremely needed. Any improvement in infrastructure will improve access to food. By definition, we will reduce some transportation costs and we will improve access to food. If we are going to create public work programs because of the need to create jobs, I think that's a huge opportunity to improve access to infrastructure that will reduce those problems. But again, uh, I think uh, there are short-term policies that need to be put in place. In emergency context, of course, we need to deploy safety nets and we need to, need to do it smartly. Uh, we need to find ways in which we can assure also the quality of the diets of what is distributed on, on what people can spend the cash that is delivering to them. Just giving them cash to, for food is not enough. There needs to be some conditions so that they eat proper food. 
because if not, they will move to super processed food and, and foods that will not comply with what we call healthy diets. But in the, in, in the, in the medium long term, we need to look at opportunities. Interregional trade is extremely important for us. We believe that improving food safety will help to reduce the, the non-tariff barriers and that will help access to food and also access to better opportunities of income and demand that could help to reduce those inequalities. So a series of measures, but it's, I think, also an opportunity to figure out what are the big changes and the structural changes that we need to put in place rather than trying to resolve the problem with short-term subsidies that will be very diluted in a very short period of time. Thank you. Thank you, Maximo. And I would just like to flag for our audience that we've received nearly 100 questions. And I apologize profusely that we will not have time to address all of those. Uh, with the time we do have remaining just before the brief closing remarks, I would like to issue a tall order to our three panelists uh, to give us in 20 seconds or less your key takeaway message for our audience. And I'd like to go in reverse order, starting with Anna Herforth, then moving on to Anna Larte, and then Marie Ruel. Again, please, in about 20 seconds each. Thanks, Tom. Um, very briefly, the main key message is that we need to increase our focus on healthy diets and our investments toward the aim of improving access by everyone to healthy diets. It's gonna take uh, a lot of investment in the types of foods that we haven't paid as much attention to uh, for the last several decades. Um, and a lot of coordination across sectors, agriculture, nutrition, and health to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Anna Larte, over to you. Thank you very much. My message is very simple, and that is, if we can eat healthy, we can actually improve the quality of life, not only for our generation, but also for future generations to come. Food is fundamental, and the saying that make food your medicine is not a joke. Food is fundamental, and healthy diet is extremely important. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you, Anna. Marie, over to you. Um, yes, I'd like to borrow uh, a conclusion from Maximo, actually, that we do have an opportunity to make changes in the food system and in all, all our systems that are affecting nutrition. And the fact that we now have revealed and agreed on a target of improving diets for everyone, reducing inequalities in access to, to affordable diets is going to be the one Thing that will help us move forward in working together on this. Thank you, Marie. It is now my pleasure to introduce our final speaker, uh, my FAO colleague, Vimlinder Sharan, who is the director of the Liaison Office for North America, who will close out our event with some closing remarks. Vimlinder, the floor is yours. Thank you, Tom. Uh, I think you've brought it back on track as far as time is concerned. So uh, thank you for my lovely moderation that he did today. Uh, it's been a really enriching and uh, thought-provoking discussion, if I may say so. And I sincerely thank uh, all participants who took time out to join us today, and especially our speakers, uh, each one of whom uh, brought an, an unique perspective to the problem at hand. I'm sure we have all learned something new and we'll take back with us thoughts and ideas to ponder and act upon. 
What came out loud and clear in our conversation today is that business as usual is not going to work and we will absolutely fail the battle with global hunger and malnutrition if we continue in this status quo as way. This year's uh, State of Food Security and Nutrition, the World Report, has brought forth a very somber tale of rising hunger and malnutrition, of inequitable food systems, of stunting and wasting amongst children, and how off-target we are from delivering on a hunger-free world. The purpose of the report, let me make it very clear, is not to point fingers at any national governments or organizations. It is to bring forth the state of play and suggest the possible pathways to eliminate hunger and malnutrition. To my mind, the solution to any problem, including that of hunger and malnutrition, is inevitably a two-step process. Step one, analysis, understanding, and information, and step two, action. Sophie, over the years, as this year, provides the much needed analysis, understanding, and information on global hunger and malnourishment. Where the world has underperformed consistently is in initiating effective action through policies, programs, and investments based on this analysis that we gather. If we were performing poorly earlier, COVID-19 has further exacerbated the situation, painting a stark picture of how fragile, inequitable, and vulnerable our food system is. We need to build better. We need to move to a new normal, a normal which calls for deep political commitment, effective and honest governance, equitable economic growth, and adequate and timely investment towards delivering upon SDG2. It is time that humanity took the proverbial giant leap forward to eradicate hunger and malnutrition once and for all. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of FAO North America and IFPRI, thank you all for being with us today. My special thanks to Katala and her team at IFPRI and Tom and other colleagues at our FAO North America office without whom this event would not have been possible. We look forward to all of you joining us at our future webinars. The next one is scheduled for the 23rd of July, where we discuss critical actions for nutrition equity. So stay tuned and thank you all once again.